A couple married for nearly 30 years with eight children present a united front to the neighbours as pillars of the community. She was a stay-at-home mother, he was a doctor with a law degree and a deacon in his church. Fine, upstanding people. The community did not know what family and co-workers did. The good doctor was anything but. This is the case of Michelle McNeil, and this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello everyone, we're back with another episode of the Murder Me on Monday podcast. I'm Cameron, and joined with me is Mother. Hello. Thank you to everyone for the continued support by downloading episodes, following us on social media and over on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you not only support our efforts, but also gain access to extra perks such as early access to episodes, bonus content and even stickers should you want them. Just drop us a line when you sign up, giving us your address. This case fascinated me when I first heard about it. Many podcasts and documentaries and a book called The Stranger She Loved by Shanna Hogan, some of which I have read. Appeal transcripts were illuminating. Much darker than the news reports about the trials, yes, trials, plural, would have you believe. There is a lot of detail to get into to set the scene for this case, and I will be putting some of the extra detail into the case autopsy. We crisscross the USA a bit. Let us start in California, when on the 15th of January 1957, Michelle Marie Summers was born. She, along with her six siblings, were raised in a place called Concord. It's a city in the San Francisco Bay Area, decent-sized place, around 130,000 residents. Dad was an alcoholic, but it didn't really affect the children much as he was barely around being a salesman and was always in and out of work. He was a distant father at best. Mum, Helen, made up for a useless dad in spades. She started her family young like most Mormon families. She was 17 when she had her first child, but she was active and present in all her children's lives. Michelle did really well at school, straight A's, really well liked became homecoming queen, leaves school in 1975 and was thinking of going to university in Utah, the famous Brigham Young University. That cost money. While she pondered on how to make it happen, Michelle worked as a model and was even voted Miss Concord in 1976. She would have been 19. Roughly a year later, Michelle's mum, Helen, and her dad finally call it quits on their marriage, and dad moves away to, again, carry on ignoring his children. Mum, Helen, decides to move 500 miles away to a place called Mission Viejo, still in California, far side of LA, and takes the girls that are still living with her along too. This includes Michelle. Michelle is now 20 years old and becomes quickly involved with the church. She regularly attends singles nights, which the church hosts to allow younger members to meet other unattached members. I don't know if you discuss it later, but why doesn't she pursue the modelling side? Or is it just because it's the in conflict with her religion, potentially? As far as I can tell, she does pursue it up until this all happens. Okay. Singles nights. It's got to be better than Tinder or Bumble, right? Especially when a dashing, well-dressed young man introduced himself in late 1977 and love-bombed her. Let me introduce Martin McNeil, who was about 11 months older than Michelle, born on the 1st of February 1956. Martin was brought up in Camden, New Jersey, along with his five siblings. Mum was a teenager when she married a much older man. He was 23 years her senior, so even at a conservative estimate, he was probably around 40 or so when they marry, and was 58 when Martin was born. The family were not happy. Alcohol involved, age differences, etc. And there was a lot of fights between the parents. 
Camden was and is still to many a really dirt poor area. But apparently it was really thriving up until the 1960s and then it took a real nosedive. No surprise when the parents divorce when Martin is small and dad moves away to Long Beach in California, nearly 3,000 miles away. Suffice to say, there were not many visits to dad. Martin lays it on thick to Michelle how bad his childhood was. Tells her his mum was a prostitute and would entertain clients at their apartment, which was so small the room was only divided by a curtain or sheet to give the illusion of privacy, with the children having to listen. It's never framed that they were so poor she had to do it out of desperation to feed her family, just that he was disgusted with her for doing it. We don't know if it's true or not what Martin tells Michelle about his younger years. All but one of his siblings appears to be dead. There are two suicides, one overdose and an alcoholic that died from a stroke. The sibling that survived managed to get away from whatever the heck that life was and she moved to Mission Viejo, same place as Michelle and her family. Something happened in that childhood. Mm. Recipe for building dysfunctional adults, two suicides, overdose, alcoholic, abuser, whatever, and then like one got away. Yeah. Did they actually get away or do they skin cats? No, that one did get away. Definitely did get away, but I have my suspicions about all of this. Anyway, when Martin is a teenager, he is determined to get away from Camden. Despite all the attempts at regeneration, he wasn't going to stay in that town and moves to live with Dad in Long Beach. Dad was in his 70s. He's probably going to struggle with a teenager that could have been his grandchild. Even more so as Martin had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder as a teenager. It wasn't called bipolar back then. It would have been called manic depression. But it makes me wonder. Martin was intrigued by the diagnosis, which explained his dramatic personality. And he used that to try and understand more about human behaviour and would often use what he had learned from his armchair psychology to his advantage by manipulation. He doesn't tell Michelle that was what he was diagnosed with. He also doesn't tell her the truth about why he'd been discharged from the army. He joined up in 1973. He was 17. He shouldn't have been able to join. You had to be 18. But the Vietnam War was still going on. Maybe they didn't look too hard at papers. Knowing what Martin becomes, it's very probable he forged something to make himself appear older. He wasn't discharged because they found out he had lied about his age. No. His behaviour became alarming to his superiors. He was insubordinate, all round weird and peculiar and would frequently talk about hearing voices telling him to kill. Is he still around the 17, 18-year-old point? Yeah, he's about 18 at this point, 18, 19. As you can imagine, that rather alarmed people, and he was sent for psychiatric assessment, which determined that he had latent schizophrenia, and I'm quoting here, other mental and psychological infirmities. If he's gone through similar processes before to receive the diagnosis, why didn't he just lie during the investigation by the army? I'm not saying anything. Just (laughs) you're going to have to wait. He is promptly discharged at the age of 19 and he applied for and was given all sorts of financial benefits through the Veterans Association and also social benefits. Miraculously, his latent schizophrenia and all, whatever else they thought he had but didn't label, all sort of drifted away once he got himself a nice little payout. No, he told Michelle none of that. Martin is out of the army, and we do not know how, but he meets some missionaries within the LDS church. He gets integrated within the community, attends church, He's never been interested in religion before that anyone knew of. Where is this? 
He's been discharged, but where is that roughly? I'm assuming it's not right outside his base, is it? It might well be, for all I know. The actual location is not given. Okay. Yeah. Maybe his past problems are behind him. Maybe finding God perhaps saved him. What do you think? Martin also fails to tell Michelle how his Mormon missionary spell went. As we know, it's common for younger male members of the church to do a two-year stint spreading the word. They often travel globally. Off he goes. We don't know where. And then Martin becomes weird again. It served him well last time with the army, so why not try it again? Predictably, other young missionaries become scared of him and his moods and temper, and Martin is shipped back home on a plane. So it could have been in the USA or another country, we don't know. But he ends up having to be escorted by another missionary as they deemed his mental health problems too severe to complete the mission. Sorted. He'd gotten out of the mission without any blowback. Martin decides that with all he knows about mental health treatment and the problems, he's going to become a psychiatrist. He moves again and attends a university in Lacey, Washington. He manages to use credits he'd gotten from an army program, which helped him get a degree in sociology and psychology in just two years. He managed to complete the degree? Yeah. Is that the longest thing that he stuck with? Yeah. He doesn't stick with anything, trust me, with this one. I read he got degrees plural, but I don't think that's actually possible. I think you do a major and a minor, isn't it? Anyway. There is Martin, armed with a degree and lofty ambitions to study further to become a fully-fledged doctor. He moves in with his sister in Mission Vielo in the summer of 1977. He is described as someone with intelligence and ambition, determined to succeed. Yet what he does next shows he is arrogant. Maybe some sort of personality disorder the army hinted at, because this behaviour is not normal. He watches a TV show about Czech forgers and how they operate. And Martin, being who he is, decides he could do it better. He somehow gets a friend, surprised he had any, to go and get a copy of a random person's birth certificate and made the friend say he was the person's father. It's a variant on the birth certificate for a fake passport that David Bieber did in episode 126. How do you send your mate on a fetch quest to get someone's birth certificate? Exactly. Where does that come from? That's in the 1970s. You could do it. You honestly could. You just go along to the local offices of whatever authority and, yeah, I'm so-and-so's relative. Give me a copy. Nobody believed that anybody would do this sort of stuff. He uses that fake birth certificate to get a temporary driver's license. And with that, he can open a bank account or checking account, as Americans call them. He opened that account with $50 and is promptly issued with a temporary checkbook. Labor Day weekend, a long weekend. Banks are shut. No one can check if there is money in an account when presented with a check. So it was normal they asked for ID. Martin waves his fake driving license and walks away with diamond rings, watches, TVs, car tyres, fridges, socks, 60 pairs, and the thing that made me laugh the most, a year's supply of chocolate-covered cherries. <laughs> this can't have been in one stint because no Willy Wonka having oh. ass factory had all this stuff just there. It was a it was a long weekend, Labor Day weekend. I think it's Friday through to Sunday, three days. He hit fourteen stores, and by the time one shop assistant got suspicious and put a halt to it, he'd spent around thirty five thousand dollars. Different parts of the country would get their information updated at different times. So you'd go one state, spend all your money here, then piss off to the one next to it because yep. it wouldn't have updated. So your bank's going to say they've got enough or whatever. And Absolutely. by that time, you don't or it's fake or it's not even you like this. Isn't this the plot of Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio? <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen it. I also realised that the problem with commission sales would probably have people 
they may have stopped him sooner if they hadn't thought about how much they were going to get from this smartly dressed guy's spending spree. We don't use checks anymore, really, in the UK. Businesses do sometimes, but everything is electronic for us. But this unlocked a memory for me working in the fraud department of a high street bank back in the 1980s. We used to deal with this stuff all the time. No computers, everything by hand. If someone now tries to pay with something by check, I assume it's a scam. Yeah. The common one is send me this, an item on eBay, and I'll send you a digital check or whatever, and it's just fake. It means nothing. People, people accept it, and they send off the stuff, and it's just gone. It vanishes. One of the big employment scams, and it's all over. It's mainly American, and I'm sorry, guys, but it really is. You apply for a job. You get an interview over text. Hello. Oh, yes. We need you to buy a computer. We are going to send a check for $3,000. Oh, look, oops, we've sent you a check for $5,000. Send us back the difference. Yeah, and then suddenly the original check gets pulled and they're on the hook and you're screwed. That temporary checkbook, we used to issue those hand-stamped with the account number. It was usually a book of 10 before your full printed checkbook came through. However, there is no way in heck any shop would take it with just a driving license. You had to have a check guarantee card. It would only be honoured up to the value of £50. If the shop accepted it over that amount and the account was empty, then it was on the shop. The bank wouldn't pay them. The check guarantee card eventually morphed into a debit card that we all know today. You could use the cards to take money out of what is now known as ATMs, or we call them cash points. Also, I think that American checks have, or at least had, the person's address on them that the account belonged to, which is astonishing to us. I have known accounts have checks issued without a name of the account holder, just a jumble of letters or numbers. That was for privacy or security reasons. Anyway, Martin is arrested. The finer details are missing. He is charged with 14 felonies and after talking to a lawyer, pleads not guilty. How, may you ask? By reason of insanity, claiming it's all down to his schizophrenia. It's difficult to claim insanity when you're doing sophisticated fraud. Yeah, I know. This defence obviously means he had to be evaluated by two court-appointed psychiatrists, one for the defence, one for the prosecution. He tells them all about the voices in his head. They agree he is deeply damaged, but he is fit to stand trial. The report actually said, The patient had gotten into trouble with the authorities due to his desire to kill people at the command of voices. Interesting little tidbit of what exactly the trouble with authorities was is missing from the narrative. And the fact they say he's fit to plead, yet no one is mentioning this stuff he has studied, such as an adjacent degree. I'd be there naked screaming about chocolate pudding if yeah. they want to claim. Or chocolate covered cherries. Yeah. <laughs> and he is out on bail as this little legal setback really has no impact on Martin. He carried on going to church and the singles nights, where he meets Michelle and sweeps her off her feet. And he tells her none of this stuff. As I mentioned, he is love-bombing Michelle. At first, she loves it. It's flattering if you've never experienced it, but it's toxic. And it always becomes stifling. And he overplayed his hand and becomes controlling. That was enough to jolt her a bit. And they are sat in his car when she tells him she's had enough and they should break up. It's America. No one should be surprised. He had a gun in his console. He grabbed it and threatens to shoot himself if she breaks up with him. Again, if anyone has never been in that situation... She falls for it. She talks him down and agrees to keep dating him. No idea if that gun was illegal or legal. And I don't think background checks, which should 
have prevented him from owning one due to his felony conviction. What's the thing yet? Some states I know also won't let people with mental health issues own a gun, which is a good thing. Halloween, 1977. Martin and Michelle are together when he tells her he has a gut feeling that something had happened to his father. The next day, Martin finds his dad dead in his house. It's ruled natural causes and Martin gets a few thousand dollars which are mostly swallowed up by his legal troubles, which Michelle still doesn't know about. After his father's death, Michelle is now convinced that Martin has some kind of powers, being able to predict someone's passing, seeing into the future, if you will. This is all screaming Chad Daybell, isn't it, folks? Laurie was no victim, but this is the same shtick Chad played on all his followers. Martin never got the chance to introduce Michelle to his dad. Presumably, she already knew his sister through church. I don't know if Martin took his sister to the church and she joined or vice versa. That's never mentioned. But Michelle gets the chance to take Martin home and introduce him to her family. They hate him on sight. It may be hindsight that makes the family feel that he was a fake, arrogant so-and-so. But the bishop coming to the house to tell them that something was really wrong with Martin wasn't. The bishop said he couldn't say what was wrong with Martin. He couldn't break confidences, but they should really try and keep Michelle away from him. I suspect the word was getting out because Martin finally tells Michelle about the felony fraud charges, but typically downplays it all. It's no big deal. Michelle tells her family. They, of course, think she will break up with him. But she plays it all, poor Martin, he had such a bad childhood, it's not his fault. And they are left not wanting to alienate her, so have to keep quiet. Especially when Martin is upping the ante and actually having screaming rows with Michelle in her own home. And Martin is telling Michelle that her family are nuts in front of them. 21st of February 1978. The two of them, they go before a justice of the peace and are married. Michelle tells no one. It's another really odd twist. She is still living at home for weeks when Martin turns up to collect his wife, whose family had no clue was married. Predictably, there's a huge row. Police are called and Martin sails off into the sunset with his beauty queen bride because there is nothing anyone can do. Michelle is an adult. Domestic abuse and coercive control are not on anyone's radar in the 1970s. There is nothing for the police to act on, even if they wanted to. And the family is left in complete shock. It doesn't take long for the family to find out the full extent of the felony charges Martin was facing. It's all over the press. It was not nothing, as Martin made out. Mum Helen even gets her hands on the court records, or legally, I may add, and she even manages to get a hold of the psych evaluations and find out that Martin is diagnosed as a schizophrenic and hearing voices telling him to kill. At no point can I find mention of any medications being prescribed or therapy for Martin. The family try talking to Michelle again, but Martin has her so under his spell, she won't hear it. Martin, for stealing all that money, gets offered a plea deal. The leniency is astonishing. 180 days in jail and three years probation for $35,000. I can't find out if he has to pay restitution, so suspect they recovered everything, even the cherry-covered chocolates. Everything from the businesses that he stole would be insured. In the 1970s? I don't know. Don't ask do. Not necessarily. A small mum and pop type place probably wouldn't, but a large jewellers would definitely have all their stuff insured. That's why like a teller doesn't care if stuff gets stolen, it doesn't affect them, and all that stuff is independently insured and they get it back. But still, quite often they get told they have to pay the money back. 
I suspect they've got everything back. I mean, that would make sense, but their stuff themselves yeah. is probably indi- individually insured. Martin and Michelle have only been married four months when he goes down. Maybe her family hoped that a six-month break for him would help get her head on straight. It doesn't. I do wonder if he knew about the plea deal and wanted to make sure they were married so she wouldn't try and escape from him while he was in jail. He gets out with all his army benefits still intact, still some money left over from his dad's death, and he promptly moves with Michelle to Hollywood. But the family have to play nice because now a grandchild is on the way. Michelle is 22 when she gives birth to their first child, a girl. Martin? Well, he had that three years probation he had to serve, but somehow, which still baffles me, he was accepted at medical school. Given up on becoming a psychiatrist, wants to be a physician. The programme he's accepted on was, shall we say, unusual. Maybe that's why he was able to get a place. It was a programme that you studied overseas for four years. Had to do a residency in the USA, I think, and still had to pass all the usual USA exams. Lots of people did this, probably massively cheaper than medical school in the USA. Lots did this in Mexico. It's a logical choice, really. And Martin signed up to a medical school in Guadalajara. And he and Michelle and the baby move. It lasted one semester. That's what, 12 weeks? No idea why, what happened. They move back to California and Martin then starts studying osteopathic medicine. That's a far cry from psychiatry and even a general physician. It's a regulated profession in the UK, have to register, etc. But you're not a doctor over here. The USA... Well, he can be called a doctor, which is all I think he wanted. They have more children. Martin gets a residency at a hospital in New York. They move, have another child. Once that residency is completed, Martin is all qualified and they move to Utah in 1987. 1988, Martin enrolls in Brigham Young, where Michelle had wanted to study. And he gets a law degree. He is also working in various hospitals at the same time. They read as locum roles or short-term contracts. My gut is saying that he kept getting fired, but I have no proof. 1990, Martin moves them again, this time to Washington, and takes up a post working in medical law. He moves them back to Utah a year later. For 20 years, they tick along. They move every couple of years, but stay within that state. Martin works all over Utah at various hospitals and facilities. They have a very good life, very affluent, and the church is the centre of their world. Martin rises to bishop. The couple even goes through a marriage ceremony at the Mormon temple, which would, in the faith, bond them for all eternity. They both have hobbies. Michelle's is dance and ballet and doing good work. Martin is the theatre. He was often on stage performing. Michelle's family, the ones that are left, moved to Utah too. And in 1998, Michelle and Martin buy their forever home. You know the type. In a place called Orem. 2000. Martin is actually appointed by the governor of Utah to become the medical director of the Utah State Developmental Center. This facility was home to 265 mentally disabled people. How has he failed upwards so successfully in quite a short span of time? Oh, God, yeah. He's He's not a historic fail, son, but how has he done this? But a part of me wants to be like, well done. Because up until this point, he hasn't done anything crazy. He's committed financial fraud, but... There's no individual victims. You could say it's immoral, but it's not as harmful. So I want to be like, wow, congratulations. You had a pretty shitty upbringing to start with, sort of sort of some problems along the way. But actually, you're, you're winning. Objectively, you are winning. We're only half an hour in, so it's going to get kind of dark soon. But right, how has you done this? You have asked that question at the exact point 
he becomes exposed. Does he expose himself? Was that where it starts going wrong? Oh, yes. Does he? Oh, yes. Get, he gets his cock out and that's what... <laughs> he does a lot more than that. Martin finally seems to be getting the reputation he really deserves. He was a bully. Intimidating staff left in droves. He even bullied residents of that facility. Mentally disabled people, he bullied them. Yet, if you didn't stand up to him, you were spared. Even became a pet, as it were. Around the early noughts, they also adopt some young children, siblings. The older children were starting to move out and move on. Maybe it was an empty nest syndrome. How many children there were, I genuinely do not know. I have read multiple reports. It seems to vary between Michelle giving birth to three, four or five and then adopting three or four. The figures vary between them having seven or eight children. Regardless, it's a lot. November 2005. Can I ask a question about that? Sorry to interrupt. How did she feel about having this many kids? I'm not saying biological kids versus the adopted ones. If she wants a bigger family, she better love whatever, down to the individual. How did she feel about so many? Because if he's working and doing, on the surface, quite successfully, earning good money, she doesn't need to work, I'm assuming. So she's looking after the kids, especially when you've got a fucking litter, you've got eight people to look after, you can't work. How does she feel about it? Or is that just not brought up? It's no way to find it. It's not brought up. I happen to know that the older children absolutely adored the adopted siblings. They didn't care. Okay. November 2005, Martin had grown bored with his wife and starts having affairs and they become increasingly blatant. He doesn't really hide it very well. Michelle knows or suspects, but she isn't going to do much. Truthfully, he's been doing this for years. The latest affair with a woman called Gypsy has more staying power than previous affairs. Martin lied to Michelle about this woman and to his children. February 2007 is the couple's 29th wedding anniversary. Martin decides to celebrate it with his mistress, not his wife. March 2007, Michelle finds Gypsy's phone number on their phone bills, confronts Martin, who just calls her ridiculous. Around the same time, during a heartfelt, tearful session at church, Martin announced that he had cancer and less than a year to live. His health appeared to deteriorate. He began limping, walking with a cane and wearing a surgical boot. He tells neighbours that he'd had some procedures done and was having some complications. Yet at work, he's telling people he has a peripheral neuropathy. It's in his toe and wouldn't get better. Another colleague said... He'd had cancer in his big toe and yet another colleague that he had neurological problems similar to multiple sclerosis. Yet he is seen doing DIY work, carrying huge slabs with no sign of any issues. I don't know if it was sold as an anniversary present, but shortly after the anniversary, Martin gifts Michelle a facelift. It was fine if that's what Michelle actually wanted, but she wasn't keen. I suspect with him it's not. Yeah. She ultimately decided it was more of a gift to Martin, making herself young and fresh again and would save the marriage. Michelle has to have a consultation with the GP to make sure it was safe for the plastic surgeon to operate. The GP realised that Michelle is depressed and also had high blood pressure. Not surprising, he wants her to delay things, see if she can get these things sorted. Martin pushes Michelle to go ahead regardless. They meet the plastic surgeon. Neither Michelle nor Martin tell the surgeon about the GP's recommendation to wait. Martin asks about post-surgery medication. The plastic surgeon tells them he typically prescribed a pain reliever called Lortab an antibiotic called cephalexin, sleeping medication, Ambien, and an anti-inflammatory, medral dose pack, oh, and an eye ointment, urethmycin. 
Occasionally, he prescribed an anti-nausea medication, Phenagon, to patients that complained of nausea associated with anesthesia. Yet I happen to know that Phenagon is also a um, sleep medication as well. You were on it when you were a toddler because you wouldn't sleep. Is that why my sleep's broken now? No. They tried giving you Valium or the child equivalent of Valium and you were bouncing off walls. You're one of the 10% that can't take um, anything that's... Got Valium in it. Yeah, it's like that. Martin, in typical arrogant style, tells the surgeon he wanted Michelle to have other drugs. Oxycodone, also known as Percocet. He also requested Lortab, the painkiller, to be in liquid format. And he also wanted more than the typical amount of Phenagon. And he wanted it in suppository form. Finally, he requested anti-anxiety Valium. Michelle has the surgery. Her recovery is going to take some time. And the daughter who she was super close with was Alexis, daughter number three, comes to take care of her because young kids still in the house and dad had to work. Alexis and Martin go to collect Michelle after the surgery. The surgeon wants her to stay at least one night. Michelle wants to stay one night in the hospital. Martin wants her home and loses his shit at the hospital. The surgeon wins. On the day that Michelle returned home, Alexis gave her her medications, dressed her wounds and helped her to the bathroom because Michelle was effectively blind. Martin tells Alexis to leave the bedroom at bedtime and he would take the night shift. The next morning, Alexis goes into her mother's room and noticed that she appeared to be very sedated. When Alexis tried to wake Michelle, she stirred a bit but didn't wake up. Alexis asked Martin what happened and he responded, gave her too much medicine. It was enough for Michelle to be physically sick but not actually wake up. Alexis said that was it. She was taking over medication of her mother. Alexis was in medical school out of state. She knows what she's doing. Martin is over-medicating Michelle. She is throwing up frequently, yet he's almost stuffing these drugs down her throat. Michelle starts to improve as the bandages come off and she is managing to cut back on all the drugs, barely taking anything. Yet Martin calls the doctor and asks for repeat prescriptions that were not required at all. Alexis knows all about her father's affair with Gypsy and she has an argument with him while she's still there. But her mother seems to be improving so she leaves her to go back to her own life. Wednesday the 11th of April 2007, Martin takes the younger children to school early and leaves Michelle at home. Michelle talks to Alexis on the phone around 8.45am. She seems fine. Everything is normal. Yet at 9.15, Martin rings Alexis and tells her to call her mum as she seemed out of it when he left. Alexis is puzzled but does as asked. Can't get mum on the phone. Martin then goes to a work presentation where he was getting an award. Makes a very big fuss about making sure the photographer got him in the pictures. You know the ones where someone is drawing attention to themselves on purpose? 11.30am. The six-year-old finishes nursery or kindergarten and Martin collects her and takes her home. The little girl walks in, obviously calling out for mummy. Martin walks into the bathroom with the six-year-old following him. They find Michelle lying in the bathtub, which is full of water, still in her clothes. Martin told the little girl to go next door to get help. Martin calls 911, gives the dispatcher a false address and hangs up. Martin called again and said, My wife has fallen in the bathtub. She is unconscious. She's underwater. Martin said he couldn't lift her, so he'd let the water out of the tub. Although the dispatcher asked him to stay on the phone, Martin hangs up again. The dispatcher called back. And Martin told her that he had CPR in progress. 
and the dispatcher asked him to stay on the phone and Martin hangs up again. He then called a colleague at work and told him he was doing a code on his wife. At the same time, Alexis called Martin to ask what was going on as she can't get mum on the phone and he tells her, your mum is dead. The little girl comes back with a neighbour. They had found Martin hunched over Michelle's head. Michelle was face up, her head at the tap end, her legs and feet inside the bath. Two more neighbours come in and they help lift Michelle out of the bath and Martin begins CPR. Michelle is described as bluish grey at this point. One of the neighbours is performing chest compressions while Martin is leaned over Michelle's head to supposedly periodically administer what's known as rescue breaths. However, the neighbour did not see Martin's mouth ever touch Michelle's and nor did Michelle's chest rise and fall when Martin administered the breaths. Two paramedics arrive and they take over CPR. Michelle's complexion immediately goes pink. Martin tells the paramedics that he'd only been away from the home for a short period of time during which Michelle overdosed on her pain medication, slipped in the tub and hit her head. Martin said that he had found Michelle face down, slumped over the tub with her upper body inside the tub and a lower body outside of the bath. Martin then began yelling and becoming increasingly loud and agitated to the point that police officers who were turned up and the paramedics feared for their safety and they actually removed him from the bathroom. The main ambulance arrived and Martin accompanied Michelle to the hospital. Michelle was pronounced dead on arrival. The emergency room doctor saw no injuries consistent with falling into a bath. Because the doctor could not determine the cause of death, he called the medical examiner's office. The McNeil's adult son returned home that evening with his girlfriend. Martin takes the son and his girlfriend to the bathroom. The son's girlfriend noticed that the bathroom was clean with no trace of blood, although Martin told her when he'd found Michelle there was blood everywhere. Martin asked the girlfriend to retrieve Michelle's pills. The girl found various drugs, but some of the bottles had very few pills in them. And then he had this girl flush the pills down the toilet. Obviously, Alexis had jumped on the first plane back to her parents and walked into the home and went straight to the bedroom to look for the medication. But the room had been cleaned out. Items that had been there just the day before... A hospital bed, stuffed animals and blankets. They'd all gone. The bathroom rug was gone. Alexis asked Martin where Michelle's medication was. He told her, I don't know. I think the police might have taken it. Yet we know he told the son's girlfriend to flush it. Whilst looking for Michelle's medication around the house, Alexis found the bathroom rug a pile of wet towels and clothing and other of Michelle's belongings out in the garage. The eldest daughter arrives home later that evening. Martin said that they needed to get the autopsy done right away because he was concerned there would be a police investigation and he didn't want anyone to think that he'd murdered Michelle. Although Martin had had one hell of a day, he still found time to give his neighbours, who he barely knew and who had helped to try and revive his wife, a tour of the renovations he completed in the home. He also found time to contact Gypsy. The two talked on the phone twice and texted each other 30 times. The medical examiner determined that the manner of Michelle's death was natural and her cause of death was cardiovascular disease with hypertension and myocarditis. Michelle's funeral was held three days later. Before the service, Martin helped set up, running back and forth from the church to his car without a cane. 
As people started arriving, however, he began limping and using the cane. That could be doing too much. Or he's faking. Gypsy attended the funeral. And the two of them were texting throughout the service. After the funeral, a family friend approached Martin and offered to help care for his young daughters. Martin told her that he'd already hired a nanny. Yes, Gypsy. She moves in nine days after Michelle's death. She, nor he, raises a finger to help the children. They were left to their own devices. Remember, the youngest is six. I think the oldest at the time was 13 or 14. Gypsy and Martin travel to Wyoming, where Gypsy introduced him to her family as her fiancé. By the end of the summer, she is calling herself Gillian McNeil. The two applied for an identification card that listed the date of their marriage as the 14th of April 2007, the day of Michelle's funeral. Alexis is distraught. She is absolutely convinced that her father murdered her mother. Michelle's sister believed the same, as does Alexis's elder sister. Alexis has to go through a lot. She knows the younger siblings are in danger. If you're trying to quell any suspicion around the suspicious circumstances of your wife's death, I get that the coroner said that it was of natural causes. Why the fuck would you list that your new, your new wedding, your new marriage is on the day of the funeral of your ex-wife? Sorry, your wit. How would you phrase that? Your dead wife. It was just an ID card. They could have picked any bloody date. Do you reckon that's like cheeky? We've done a sneaky. Yes. Because he's arrogant. He absolutely is. Said Alexis is frantic. She basically had to plea bargain with her dad to get him to give custody of the younger siblings to her. She uses a sexual assault by Martin on her only a month after her mother's death to get him to agree. She won't press charges if he gives her the children. He claims he was in a sleep state and thought that Alexis was her mother. It's a real risk he won't go for it, but eventually he does. And she takes those children back to Arizona with her. Gypsy, or Gillian, I think that's her middle name, has problems. About fifty or $60,000 in debt. She says it's taxes. There's a solution. They use the ID of one of his younger daughters to get false ID for Gypsy. Oh, they get caught for that in 2009. It's a federal offence. Martin gets four years in prison for that. There is also mention, and no idea if it's true, that Martin had also sent one of the adopted daughters, I think she was 16 years old, to Ukraine on a visit but actually hadn't planned for her to come back to the US. It also altered his will. There was only going to be $1 each to his children, with all the rest of it going to Gypsy. Martin also acted as Michelle's attorney and signed property over to himself to evade taxes, pretending that Michelle was still alive. Martin goes away in 2009. Gypsy is left hanging until 2011. She gets three years probation for her part in the identity theft scheme with credit for 180 days in jail awaiting trial. There's good reason for that and I'll get to it in a minute. Gypsy, Gillian, was also a nurse. Due to all of this, not only was Martin stripped of all his professional qualifications, I believe her licence was removed too. Oh, and she wasn't adverse to using meth to keep slim for Martin either. Her own sister said that. Michelle's only son was so distraught over his mother's death and possibly the aftermath, as he was the only one supporting Martin, he fell into a deep depression and eventually killed himself in January of 2010, aged only 24. Alexis and her sister and aunt get to work. It's mainly Alexis driving this, but they eventually get investigators to re-examine Michelle's manner and cause of death. 
The Utah County Attorney's Office asked a toxicologist to re-examine the original toxicology report from Michelle's autopsy. The report stated that at the time of death, Michelle's blood contained Valium, Percocet, Phenagon and Ambien in concentrations likely to make Michelle basically unresponsive or so out of it as to not know who or where she was. The new ME changed the manner of death from natural to undetermined and changed her cause of death from heart disease to the combined effect of heart disease and drug toxicity. It takes seven and a half years, but the state eventually charged Martin on the 24th of August 2012 with murder, which is a first degree felony and obstruction of justice, which is a second degree felony. He, of course, pleads not guilty. Very interesting that the arrest warrant stated that a much younger Martin had attempted to murder his mother and had killed his brother, Rufus Roy McNeil, who had been found dead in a bath. That's the one who was supposed to have had a stroke. And that came about by Martin telling one of his many affair partners that he'd killed him. He's never charged with it, though. Gypsy's lenient sentence? She had to testify against Martin. She doesn't believe he is guilty of doing anything, but does tell the trial in October of 2013 how they met, the lies, but to her it was all just fun. The defence says that Michelle overdosed and drowned, and Martin was at work as the photographs from his award ceremony showed. He doesn't testify in his own defence. You could have also very easily just drugged her and stuck her in the bath. Yeah. It doesn't matter that you're at the award ceremony. Yeah, exactly. If you've got like a time release thing, duh, you don't need to be there. Exactly. I know he's trying to make an alibi as well. He was also with his kid as well. And that's why they went into the bathroom together. Because look, daddy couldn't have done this. Because look, mummy's in the bath. Yeah. She wasn't in there when I left. Yep, exactly. Alexis testified just one week after giving birth to twins. 9th of November 2013, after 11 hours, the jury finds Martin guilty of the murder of his wife. He was also convicted of obstruction of justice for hindering the investigation of his wife's murder by attempting to make Michelle's death appear accidental. December 2013, a month after being convicted of Michelle's death, he tries to kill himself by cutting himself with a disposable razor. Those who worked at the prison said that he was unhappy he was interrupted in his suicide attempt. Then, while he is awaiting sentencing, his second trial starts, the one for the sexual assault on Alexis all those years ago. In the meantime, Alexis had raised her siblings, changed her name to her mother's name, and had had Martin's surname of McNeil removed from Michelle's tombstone. When Martin is seen in court in 2014, people are shocked at his appearance. He looks cadaverous, really emaciated. He isn't formally on hunger strike, but seems to have been attempting to starve himself to death without anyone doing anything. He has two psych evaluations. He initially refuses to meet with them. This is a pattern for him, but eventually he does, and they both declare him fit to stand trial. His lawyers complain that after trying to cut his own throat, he was put on suicide watch and held in an isolation cell where he must wear a suicide rope and lights are shined on him 24 hours a day, preventing him from getting proper sleep. What's a suicide rope? Suicide robe. Robe. I thought you said rope, and I'm Sorry. like, I thought that's what he wanted was the rope. Yeah. I don't know why you'd. I, I don't know what that robe. was. Okay, it's suicide robe. Okay, yeah. and he's got these bright lights in him. Yeah, stops him getting sleepy. Is that what they're trying to claim? Yeah, the problem is. Okay, and his lawyer says that his client is also unable to receive nourishing vegetarian meals and is cuffed and chained every time he showers. The trial for this assault takes place over two days in July of 2014. When it goes to trial, it turned out the police had actually lost the recording of Alexis reporting the assault. The defence wants it tossed due to that, yet 
the witnesses able to testify, which makes no sense on the part of his lawyers. Martin is found guilty of the sexual assault, which many are surprised at. It's not that anyone disbelieved Alexis, more it really did boil down to a he said, she said thing. September 2014 is a bad month for Martin. 15th. He is sentenced to 1 to 15 years for the sexual assault. He refused point blank to engage with any programs within the jail, so that made him ineligible for parole. He would have to do the 15 years. 19th. He gets sentenced to 15 for life for the murder and 1 to 15 for the obstruction. Those two sentences are combined, but the sexual assault sentence was consecutive. The earliest he would be getting out on parole would be September 2031. He would be 75. It could even be another 20 years further than that. His lawyers appealed the sexual assault charge and in August 2016 it's denied. His lawyers appealed the murder conviction immediately and in March 2017 the Court of Appeals denied that one as well. We are not quite finished. Considering he was very uncooperative, it's rather surprising they didn't keep a closer eye on him in prison. Because on the 19th of April 2017, he is found dead by two inmates who, rather interestingly, make no attempt to revive him. Two versions. It was by a greenhouse that had a gas heater. That's not unusual. Need to keep seedlings warm overnight when there's still frost. One version is he used the pipe and a bag over his head and gassed himself. The other one was he used the pipe from the gas heater to hang himself. Could have used the prison rope. I know the remaining siblings will be suffering still. I know that they are probably in therapy, but they really did get justice for their mum. The youngest child that was made a witness to her mother's murder by Martin was the one who actually almost sealed his fate in court. The child had drawn a picture of the bathroom and how things were when they found Michelle. That was a key piece of evidence, and Martin tried, or at least his lawyers did, to have that struck, along with a specialist interview done under professional child advocate guidance of the child, so as not to traumatise her further. He lucked out on both counts. Before we sign off... I will leave you with one tiny little bit of information from the book. I genuinely have no idea if it's true, but suspect it is. Apparently, investigators find that Martin lied about his higher education, having mental illness and was getting disability illegally from the Veterans Benefits Administration for over 35 years. He fakes his bloody degree with fake papers. It was all manual back then, nothing online, and no one contacted the university to make sure he'd actually graduated. Right, there's a long pause, and I'm going to keep it in. Okay, what part did he lie about? And I, I know you're saying all of his like higher education, but did he actually get his sociology degree? Yeah. He got that. That was a two-year one. We assume he had that, yeah? I'm going to question this further because he was almost put as the fucking like board of medical doctor thing in utah yeah he literally did the catch me if you can yes. Leonardo dicaprio tom hanks yes. movie okay i'll give you this i had kept it for the case autopsy but oh well i'll give you this now apparently according to this book at one point when things were going down in the early days when mum helen michelle's mum helen she was collecting something from his car or something shopping out of the boot and there was a briefcase or a bag there and it said and this is why I'm not really sure whether this is true or not that she found headed paper from that university where he supposedly got his degree in that was blank that was blank and I'm sat there thinking well that's no bloody good because certificates are not done on headed paper they're done on much heavier gauge card and I've usually got some fancy hollow foil on it and they do now but the suspicion is that no he never did anything to do with his weird osteopathy qualifications he would go to university go and take a course go and do and then just flunk out constantly or get kicked off or 
there is so much more information. But he was a practicing one. No, he didn't ever. F- he was always. Yeah, but I'm saying he made money though. Yeah. Doing it, so he was practicing it somehow. He was doing it as a role. Management. I yeah, can't I, do. I, I know. Ta- I know you don't need to do it. You need to know how to manage people. But okay. Okay. Yeah. But he's making a lot of money. Okay, I said he wasn't uh-huh. a fail son, but oh no, I, I, he's elevated to fail son. He's, he's actually just failed upwards entirely. Yes, absolutely. Quite epic. a good fraudster, though. Yes, absolutely. Did anyone else know this, apart from when it was revealed? And how did it only get revealed quite late? Why was it not found out sooner? Because by that point, by this point, Facebook's out and exists. So internet and technology should be more sophisticated. Was he weirdly grandfathered in? So they just yeah. assumed, ah, oh, fuck it. He's got a piece of card that says that. It must be true. Yep, exactly it. If you look over someone's history, how far back do you go? You don't go back 30-odd years. If they're 30, I do. Well, I have no means to, but I would. If they're 30, I would. If they're 70, the stuff that they're going to have achieved when they were 20, I've probably got no way of finding that. But people that are born sort of internet age, 100% can find stuff. Yeah, but not this one. He would have traced everything back perfectly. It would have all fitted together. And it was only when somebody actually went back to the original root of is this the M. Night Shyamalan twist you said that I should have been expecting when we were downstairs kind of but there's still more to actually come over in the case okay. and that is the end of this week's episode and finally the victim who should not be forgotten Michelle Marie Summers aged 50 so there it is everyone another episode of the Murder Me Monday podcast everything we're associated with you can find in the description below find us on Patreon if you're on the Patreon hang about where we'll be doing the case autopsy discussing the case further much love peace bye